A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, the twelfth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let the house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I invite the congregation to be seated. So a a bad joke that I had in seminary from this uh, second lesson how is it that, uh, that Paul knew that Abraham wasn't someone who would just let, let things slip by? Because he knew Abraham lived in tents. Ha, 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 ha. So, uh, in answer to the question that I asked the kids this morning, have you ever been afraid? One day, while we were, uh, while we were I was probably about 12 or 13, and uh, we lived in Harbison in Irmo, which, uh, which was carved out of the out of what used to be probably part of the national forest or the state forest that's out there, Harbison State Forest. And uh, behind our house, we had what we considered woods. Now, out, out here, you may not consider these to be woods, but living in a subdivision, these were woods, and they were big. And so we decided that we were going to walk to the end of the woods, which was probably, I don't know, two or three miles, if that, and... That was what we set out to do that morning, and we were, we were geared up for action. We had canteens, and we had food, and we snacks, and we had all kinds of things. And, you know, we, were, we double-socked because back then, like I said, we lived in a subdivision, and uh, so that was hiking for us. And we were going to find the edge of the woods. So we were walking, and we uphill, downhill, and all of a sudden, we came to a clearing. And in this clearing was what I call boy heaven. Because all of a sudden, we saw this run-down shack, and there were broken lawnmowers laying around the place, and discarded tools, and all kinds of things that we could cut ourselves and get tetanus with. And what better stuff could we find to play with than that, right? And so we see this, this run-down shack, and the, so of course we go up and look, and I see this, this big canister with copper tubing coming out of the top. And... <laughs> Now, later on, someone called it still, but I know it was moving. And, and so we were, now we really didn't have any idea what this was at that point in our lives. Because like I said, we were from the suburbs. And we, uh, so we were looking for the door like any self-respecting young, young group of boys would do. And it was me and my brother and a friend of ours who was a year older and another friend who was two years older and... Uh, we were looking for the door, and all of a sudden, now, I don't know whether this is what we heard or how the story was adjusted afterwards, 
But this is what I remember. You know, all of a sudden, we heard the very distinctive ch and a dog. And someone said, what are you boys doing out there? And my friend, who never was at a loss for words, said, running, sir. And so, and so we ran. And as we were running, you know, we, we, were, we had longer legs than my little brother. I was about 12, which made him about nine. And all of a sudden, I looked back, and he had fallen down. And my friend said, leave him. He's a goner. I said, if I leave him, I can't go back home. So I, so I turned around and grabbed my little brother. And, you know, I, whether or not we were in any actual danger, who knows? But certainly, you know, the fear was real, and we, we ran like we were afraid. You know, th- those moments are the ones we laugh about. You know, there, there are other moments where we say, have you ever been afraid? And we think of moments that are a lot more serious. I... Uh, about five months ago, we, we put our dog in the hospital and, because we found out that she had kidney failure. And so, first of all, I was afraid of what that bill was going to be because they'd said dialysis, and I know in people that's not cheap. And, and let's just say that I used to be someone who said I'd never spend that kind of money on a dog, and I am no longer that person. Um, but I heard that, and I, I was afraid. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid that we weren't going to be able to help her right then, but I was, I was really afraid of what was going to happen. You know, when we got her out of, the, out of the little doggy hospital and we found out that we had to give her fluids every day. Let me tell you, if, if you have to rely on Eric Wolf to take care of you and be your nurse, you are having a bad day. <laughs> now, now, fortunately, Lauren Wolf is a lot better at this than I am. She was a paramedic, and so I heard the term subcutaneous fluids with lactated ringer solution, and I... Huh? And my, my wife knew just what to do. And, and I learned. And, and for five months, we, we made her food that literally took me longer to prepare than it took to prepare my own. And we gave her fluids every night, and we, you know, we, we worried over and we fussed over. And, you know, this, this week we had to uh, say goodbye to her. You know, this is the, we, weren't, we weren't a dog family growing up. I'd never had to do that before. And man, when we heard over the weekend when she was back in the doggy hospital, back on dialysis, that her blood pressure was 290 over whatever, and her blood pressure is supposed to run like our blood pressure, so, you know, 120 over 60 and 290? Holy cow. I remember about the highest mine's ever been is 170 at some point, and I felt like I was going to die. I couldn't imagine what she was going through. And... You know, I thought about what that meant, and I was scared. And, and we went that morning knowing the decision that we had already made, regardless of what her values were, because there was just no way we could keep her, un- keep her values under control. And I was scared. And, uh, you know, even afterwards, as, as we had done the thing, and we had, we had held her and said our goodbyes, and I cried in a way that I try not to admit that I'm capable, you know, I was still scared. Because, you know, when you, when you lose someone that you care about, when you lose a family member, it's, it's a scary thing, as sad as it is. You know, I was scared because what, what do we do now? What do, I, what do I do when I go to let her out and, uh, and she's not there to, to let out or she, go to let her in and she's not there to let in? And what do I do with the time that I used to spend preparing her food? Turns out video games do all right for that. What do, what do we do, you know, with, with the way that we we cared for her when we recognized that the schedule that we had developed is something that we no longer keep. You know, and 
Uh, the bigger version of this is, you know, caring for a spouse or caring for a child or caring for a parent. When you're, when you're the one who's all of a sudden the adult who has to be in charge, let me tell you, you know, at 39, when I realized that I was the adult who had to be in charge of what was going on with Keeley, I was scared. And, and I have a feeling that whether you're 39 or 59 or 29, and you realize that, that you are the one who has to hold that responsibility, I don't imagine it's any less scary for anybody. You know, fear is something that we live with as a constant reality. I, I tell people jokingly, but seriously, that the difference between 39 and 25 is that at 25, if I get a weird pain in my gut, I say, oh, that's going to go away. At 39, I say, is this the thing that's going to get me? And, or the fear that we have, you know, during one of those election years where I think maybe the sanest choice would be none of the above. You know, the fear that, that politicians from every party try to instill in us, telling us that the world is difficult and bad and we ought to be afraid of this and we ought to be afraid of that. And certainly there, there are very real, very real things in the world to be afraid of. But let's face it, we also live our lives in one of the safest nations on the entire planet. You know, sometimes playing to our fears is just trying to get people worked up so that we don't think. Because when, we, when we're afraid and we use this part of our brain instead of this part of our brain, we don't always make our best decisions, do we? And then there's the thing that, that really gets me. You know, when, when people try to tell me that God's someone that we should be afraid of. Now, like I said to the kids, and I think this is one of those places where the children's sermon and the sermon sermon look really similar. You know, like I said to the kids, just like our parents, you know, we, we live with the consequences of our decisions, right? And if we make good decisions, we get good consequences. And if we make bad decisions, we get bad consequences. But again, just like our parents... When we make bad decisions, our parents don't stop loving us. You know, I, I can't think of anything that I could do where all of a sudden mom would want to burn me with lightning. Well, maybe she'd want to, but that would cause mom to actually burn me with lightning and thunder if I do something wrong, right? We, we hear in this nation and, and on the news, whenever people mention Christianity, what I deem to be a false version of God a version of God who is angry and waiting to punish us, a version of God who is waiting to burn us with lightning and thunder, a version of God who is just waiting for the moment where we step this far out of line so finally God can do that thing that God has always wanted to do, which is punish us because we are evil. Now, granted, we're capable of evil, and we confess because we're capable of evil and we're capable of doing bad things, but if you were to tell me that about any other relationship I have in my life, that the person who I live with, the person who I love, the person who I rely on is just waiting for me to slip up this much so they can beat me, so they can burn me, so they can disown me, I would tell you that's an abusive relationship and you ought to run. If God loves us, then don't you think God might act like God loves us? There is a different narrative for God. Every time God or a messenger of God appears in the Bible, the first words out of their mouth, almost every time, do not be afraid. To Abram, do not be afraid, for I am your shield. 
you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And, and we think of shepherds as, or at least in the suburbs, you know, we think of shepherds as these meek and mild, peaceful little kids, right? And I never really understood what the rod and the staff were for. I, like the staff, I imagine like the shepherd's crook. So if the sheep gets out of line, they tug them in, right? And so I could see that because I have a tendency, and this is going to shock you, to do things that aren't always good for me and to make decisions that aren't, don't always take into account the things I ought to be doing. I have a tendency to do what I want, right? I know, dwell in that shock for just a moment. But, you know, the other thing that a shepherd is is a fierce defender against wolves and other animals in the, in the pasture that might be after the sheep. The shepherd defends them. You know, the shepherd is the one who leads them to still water so they might drink and leads them into the pastures so they might eat. The shepherd is the one who guides their way by day and by night. You know, we, we have this image of, of God who leads the people out of Egypt, right? And, and what we like to see in the movies is the parting of the Red Sea and the, and the Hebrew people crossing over dry land. And then all of a sudden the Egyptians get what they deserve when the waters crash back down over them. And the people are very happy and grateful to God. And they promise, oh God, we are always going to obey you. And then we see what happens when, when, we, get a, when we get comfortable. We see what happens when we forget what it is that we're really about, that we're people who rely on God in all times, whether times are good or times are bad. And when the people get just a little ways out and Moses is up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, what are they doing? They're melting down their jewelry so they can build an idol to the god Baal because he's a fertility god and they just got it of slavery and it's time to party. So what do we see of God? God gets angry about this, right? Because what's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And Moses pleads on behalf of the people. And what does God do? God relents. If I remember right, and it's been a few years since I've studied the Hebrew, the, the word is that God repents of his anger. God turns away from his anger. God turns aside from that anger. God turns toward the love that God always has because the real God is a God who loves us and acts like God loves us. The real God is a God who is not just waiting to burn us with lightning and thunder if we screw up this much. The real God is a God who is in relationship with us, with a love that is patient and kind, a love that is merciful and steadfast, a love that does not, is not envious or boastful or any of the other things that Paul writes about in Corinthians. God's love never ends. And when we think about this love, when we hear Jesus say to the disciples, do not fear, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, that other thing that I think we think about all the time is, you know, we, we like to see the Hollywood action in everything we do. You know, we think about what judgment might look like, and we have Revelation, which is a, a great book that talks about what the coming of God may be like. And it's got all kinds of things. It's got fire and it's got brimstone. Cecil B. DeMille or any of the rest of them would be envious to be able to represent this, right? But if God loves us, then 
why are we afraid of the coming of God? You know, I, I think the point of Revelation isn't this is the thing that God is going to do to all the bad things. The point of Revelation is in the midst of all these things that are happening in the world that are beyond our control, that we're afraid of, that we're nervous about, that we're anxious about, those things that, especially right now, where you know our brains are not wired to understand that something's happening across the world, so we don't need to be afraid of it. We hear that something happens in Paris, or we hear that something happens in Iran, or we hear something happens in Afghanistan, and I get just as nervous about it happening there as it does when it happens in Newberry or in Irmo or in Lexington or all the places where good Lutherans live, right? And, you know, in a world where all of a sudden we not only have our own problems and and fears to deal with, but we have to be afraid of everything all the time because our brains don't know how to distinguish the two. You know, we, we have this promise of God that God's pleasure is to give us the kingdom, And what does the coming of the kingdom of a God who loves us look like? That kingdom looks like a healthy household, not the one of a God who is abusive. And, you know, as I think about how do we we live in the midst of fear without giving in to the way fear separates us? How do we live in the midst of our anxiety? without giving into the narrative that sometimes my anxiety creates that tells me what a terrible, nasty, awful person I can be. And I, and I can be. I've been married 15 years, and I've had a good shot at learning you know, that I am not the reasonable human being that I always assume I am, that I have every capable thing in my body to be unreasonable too. But the way we deal with our fear, the way we deal with our anxiety, the way we deal with our brokenness and sinfulness and hatefulness is we gather and say the words in one way or another, we confess that we are in, we're captive now to sin and cannot free ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, right? And in my anxiety, I say that because I think God needs to hear this. The gospel in which Jesus commands us not to fear is that sin isn't God's problem. I sin and God loves me. You sin and God loves you. Sin is our problem. Sin isn't the thing that separates God from us. Sin is the thing that separates us from God because we do not believe that we are worthy to be forgiven or that we are worthy to approach God or that we're worthy of the love that our husband or wife has of us or that our children has for, have for us that we're not worthy of the love and affection of our friends, that something tells us we're not worthy of, the, of having a decent job or all the things that go on in our minds that tell us that we are not worthwhile. The cross that we bear isn't that God is angry and waiting to harm us. The cross that we bear is that we cannot imagine how a loving and just God could love us, could love me with all the mean, nasty, hurtful things that I'm capable of saying. I who am captive to sin and cannot free myself, the fear that I live with is that God will hear my words and shake his head. And the promise of the gospel is that sin is my problem, not God's problem. And when I come to God, God waits with open arms. Because in the same way 
dad told me after I wrecked the first car that I had, or that actually it was their car, it wasn't my car at that point, you know, I'm glad you're okay. Don't worry about it. Right now, there's nothing to forgive. Now, dad is not God. And so later on, there was something to forgive. But, you know, in, in that moment, I saw that love that loves me, even though I had broken the rules and done the thing I wasn't supposed to. And I was positive that dad was going to come there and he was going to rant and he was going to rave and he was going to tell me that I'll never drive again and all that stuff, you know, that you're afraid of. And instead, I got calm, Dad. And if you know my family, when you get calm anyone, that's almost scarier than getting angry someone. So we gather in the midst of our fear and in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our problems, in a world that we can't control. And what we realize is that the God who loves us and claims us and names us through the waters of baptism and nourishes us through the bread and wine of communion and sends us out so that we can bear the love and mercy and joy of the God who loves us. That God is the God who hears our confession and sees our brokenness and stands with us in those places where we don't think that joy could ever come again because we've just lost our dog or we've just lost our husband or our wife we've lost a child or we've wrecked our car or we've lost our job or we've lost our house or our bank account doesn't look like it's supposed to or our retirement plan is, has gone kaput because the economy has crashed or any of the number of things that happen that cause us to just be convinced that there is nothing in this world that's powerful enough to ever give us hope. And God says, do not be afraid for I am your shield. Fear not, little flock. For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And sin isn't God's problem. And our limitations aren't God's problem. And our lack of faithfulness isn't God's problem. Because God is the one who makes promises and keeps them. Keeps them. God is the one who loves us and keeps loving us. God is the one who hears our confession and says, I love you. God is the one who in the midst of a world that is out of control is in control. And as Rob Bell said, words that I, that I ponder really frequently, you know, the hardest part of the gospel for me to believe isn't that, that God loves me. It's that God trusts me with the work of the kingdom. You know, and I add my own caveat that I don't know that I would trust me with a potato gun. And yet somehow God trusts me with the kingdom. So what is it as we go out from this place, celebrating our homecoming, celebrating the relationships that we've built over our lifetime, celebrating the ministry of this church? What is it that we carry out into the world? We carry out the good news that we are not in control and God is that it is not up to our love to be able to love this world and to peace and justice and the new way of seeing the kingdom of God that is coming to be. But it is God's love and God's call and God's justice and God's power and God's faithfulness that drives us out into the community to meet our neighbors, that drives us into the community to bring the kingdom, that drives us out into the community to feed those who are hungry and to clothe those who are naked, although I don't encounter many naked people, to, to do all those things.
that Jesus calls the greater things in the Gospels. We are the ones who are called. So as we go out from this place, how is it that you answer that holy call of God to be the hope, to be the promise, to be the love that never ends, to be the ones who declare that we don't have control, and maybe that is the good news, because at the end of the day, God is. Amen.